All right. Hello, everybody. So good. So good to see you. So glad you're here. I want to welcome everybody at our Legacy Campus, uh, as well as other campuses, too. We're, we have multiple locations. So uh, everybody at Woodbridge and Richardson, Sloan Creek, in Espanol, everybody online right now, wherever you are. And I want to thank you first before we jump into our series and topic for praying for me this weekend as an Alabama fan. I know I've gotten some condolences, emails and calls and texts, and it's, it's tough, but I'm, I'm getting through. And, uh, you know, it's day by minute by minute. Let's put it that way. And, uh, but hey, that was, that was a great game and we came up way short. And those of you who are LSU fans, awesome job. So yeah, have to give it to you, a better team. So, um, cause you don't always win in life, right? Sometimes it goes the other way, which gets us into our topic today because we're in this series called shadow side and, and what shadow side is about is the ups and downs of life. It's helping navigate the wins in life as well as the losses in life. The, the things that we pray for, we say, God, please, you know, give us this. Like last week we talked about success and talked about how God wants that for us. He gives us wisdom to that end and, and all of that. But success is also dangerous. It has a shadow side. You have to navigate it well for it to be a good thing. And in a similar way, the, the downs are the same way. The things that we pray, oh, God, please don't let this happen to me. Um, if we navigate those well can actually help us get what we want even more and become uh, become the people that God wants us to become and that we really want to become deep down too, if we navigate those well. And so today, last week we were on an up. Today we're kind of going down uh, and talk about one of those times in life. And, and it's going to be awesome today. This talk is going to be one of the best talks you've ever heard. It's going to be great. And I know that because I'm not doing it. Um, and I know who is. And I've already heard it. You know, I, I heard I got to hear it Friday night and and uh, and I know who's giving it. And that is Andy McQuitty, who is uh, is a, an amazing friend. And for many of you, if you've been around the Dallas area, you may know maybe at some point you if you were lived over uh, in Irving, uh, you may have even gone to his church. I've talked to a number of people who did that, but he was pastor at Irving Bible Church for many years and just recently handed off the senior pastor baton. He's still on the team at that church. Um, and still serving faithfully there, too, but was willing to come over and hang with us, Chase Okers. Uh, he's also uh, a really good friend of mine. And we there's a there's a group of pastors, uh, very similar pastor, uh, very similar churches in the Dallas area that meet together about once a month to encourage each other and share, really help each other navigate the highs and lows of life and the highs and lows of ministry, I think, for all of us, I'm not sure we'd still be doing what we're doing without that group of people. And Andy has been a very life-giving and, and wonderful friend. And, um, and he's going to share uh, today out of his own journey and out of his own life as well as the Bible. And you may remember as a church, we prayed for him if he were in our church a few years ago through a really difficult journey that he'll talk about. And we heard reports back from him and his perspective is so encouraging and, and for us in the middle of that. And if you remember that, that's who I'm talking about. And so he's earned this talk and, uh, and, and you'll understand what I mean. But I want to make sure that we give him a really big Chase Oaks welcome as he comes to the stage. Andy, thank you so much. Well, good morning, Chase Oaks. When I come here, I feel like I'm coming home. Because of what Jeff said, my long-term friendship with him as a pastor in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, 
And also our churches are like sister churches, Chase Oaks and Irving Bible Church. You may not have known that, but Jeff and I do. And so because you prayed for me back in 2009 and forward when I got diagnosed with cancer, um, I'm here today to share with you. So thank you very much. You are my family. And I feel like I've come home. So since I retired as senior pastor at IBC, I've had time on my hands and I've had friends ask me to come and preach for them. And uh, they always give me a topic. And the topics that I've had in the last several months in preaching other places than IBC are healing, tragedy, and money. And Jeff called me up a couple months ago and said, hey, I want you to come preach at Chase Oaks. I said, good. What do you want me to preach on? He said, suffering. (laughs) So I just want all my friends to know I'm on to you, you know. Bring the retired guy in to do the heavy lifting. And I'm happy to do it. I'm honored to do it because I do feel like the Lord has given me a message for you on suffering. I want to start this morning by reading to you what I think is the seminal passage in the New Testament that speaks to God's children going through times of suffering. It's Romans 8, 28 and 29, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn with many brothers and sisters. Isn't that a wonderful verse? How many of you have lived your life as a Christian with that as an undergirding promise of your days? I know I did all the way up until I was 53 years old. And I got a call from my doctor that said, you have cancer. Get in here. We got to start treating this. All of a sudden, I began to wonder about all things working together for good, even this. I went into treatment for cancer. I started with major surgery. I had two major surgeries. I had 18 months of really gnarly chemotherapy. And I went into what I'm calling for today's purposes the crucible of suffering. I'd been ridiculously healthy for all the years of my life until that. And then I was facing death. They gave me an 8% chance of survival. So... um, I want to read to you an account of a description of the suffering, part of the suffering that I went through, that I wrote in a book called Notes from the Valley, which um, comes out of this whole experience. In the notes, I write these words about my time in the valley. After both surgeries, it really hurt to cough, laugh, stand up, sit down, walk, turn over in bed, scratch, stretch, or even yell at politicians on TV. Well, I do a lot of that. I even got a new nickname from my staff at church after losing 12 inches of my colon, semicolon. <laughs> Lovely. Little did I know that surgery for me was just suffering's start. It was merely practice for the big game, 18 months of chemotherapy with its cornucopia of side effects. Fatigue, hair loss, nausea, constipation, sore gums and, and throats. Skin and nail and muscle problems, neuropathy, vision and blood count changes. Also, 
a condition known as chemo brain, a mental fog which extinguishes memory, blunts concentration, and rendered me slightly more advanced than a mollusk on the Atlantic sea floor. <laughs> Fall Fox, which was the re regimen of drugs in my chemotherapy, gifted me with bowel movements like volcanic magma singeing its way through my system, <laughs> leaving, is this TMI? <laughs> Singeing its way through my system, leaving flaming skin irritation and a crying need for a dubiously named product, which is called, I kid you not, butt paste. <laughs> Can I say butt at this church? I guess I just did. It also multiplied mouth sores so bad that I went days without being able to speak and had to use baby teeth and gum anesthetics in the inside of my cheeks to be able to preach at Irving Bible Church. Suffering, is that one of those good things that God works all things together for? That was the question that I was convicted of as I entered into this valley of pain. Confusing, yeah. Good, I'm not so sure. How can this be good? What good can come from this? Now, I'm just going to take a big chance and assume that there are bunch of people in a room this size and on all the campuses and online around the world, there's a lot of you who are listening to my words right now. You're in the valley of affliction right now. You are in the crucible of suffering right now. And it may not be physical suffering like I went through with cancer treatments and so forth. It could be mental. It could be emotional. It could be spiritual. There's all kinds of ways that we suffer in, in this world and in our lives. And I just want to empathize with those of you who are going through that right now. And you're beginning to ask yourself the question that I asked myself back whenever I started into the valley. And that is, is this one of those good things that God can work together for good in my life? Or... Is it just something that I can be very depressed about, disappointed about, and angry about? A philosopher named Pierre Bailey years ago expressed his criticism of God for letting his children go through suffering in these words. He said, if God is good, he is not omnipotent, or he would end suffering. If God is omnipotent, he is not good, or he would end suffering. But because suffering is not ended, God cannot be both good and omnipotent. In other words, in his form, formulation of the problem of evil, suffering is evidence that God is not good or he's not powerful. I think... If you're human, if you enter into the valley of affliction, not by your choice, you will be tempted to think the same thing. I was. And I just want you to know this morning, it's okay if you have those doubts. It's okay if that pain in your body or in your mind or in your emotions or in your spirit spills over into a sense of rejection by God. Here's what I want to point out about Pierre Bailey, his formulation of the problem of evil. He makes one big mistake. Did you know what it was? Did you notice it? He says, because God has not ended suffering yet, he's not good and he's not powerful. 
But the whole witness of Scripture, the, the whole narrative of God's Word, is a narrative of, a, yes, He has not ended it yet, but someday He will. And those like Pierre Bailey and others who criticize God as being a not a good God, not a loving God, not a powerful God because suffering continues, they're like people who read most of the book but don't finish the book and read the last chapter. The last chapter of God's book says, yeah, he hasn't ended it yet, but he definitely will. And in the meantime, though he doesn't end our suffering, he redeems it and he rewards it. See, I think that when we talk about suffering, I believe that the crucible of suffering is God's graduate school for Christ-likeness, for his trusting children. I think that whenever God allows his children to go into seasons of suffering, it's like his invitation to come and get a graduate degree in becoming like Christ. The question before all of us is not whether we get to suffer or have to suffer. I personally believe that all of us will at one point or another. Everybody gets their chance in the batter's box in this broken and pain-filled world. Our choice is not whether we suffer. Our choice is whether we're going to respond like Jesus when we suffer. Our choice is whether we're going to be a dropout from God's graduate school of Christ-likeness or get a graduate degree in Christ-likeness. That's the choice. And I'm just warning you right up front, right here and now, that everything I'm going to say from this point forward is to all of you who are in that crucible of suffering right now and you're being tempted to drop out of graduate school, and I'm going to say to you, don't drop out. Actually embrace it. Because God is working all of this for your good. I want to do that. I want to argue you into staying in school. I want to argue out of dropping out of God's graduate school of suffering by going through with you how God redeems our suffering as his children and how he rewards it. Okay? Are you with me? How does God redeem our suffering? Well, let me take you to another passage from the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Paul writes there these words, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Paul is writing to the blood-bought sons and daughters of God who by faith in the risen Christ have been forgiven of our sins and welcomed into the forever family of God. He's writing to the church. He's writing to us. And he's saying... We boast, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Those of us who have been born again and redeemed and were Christ followers. And then he says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Did you ever notice that before? We, the blood-bought sons and daughters of God, we glory in our sufferings. It's quite a statement. But here's how Paul backs it up. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. 
character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the first way that God redeems our suffering. He makes it so that our persevering through suffering shapes our character. That's what Paul says. We glory in our sufferings because our suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and then hope and love. But character is one of the redemptive factors of our suffering. This is counterintuitive, I know. But the fact is that one of the greatest gifts that God can give to one of his children in this world, in this broken world, is an all-expense-paid stint in the crucible of suffering. Because of how God redeems that suffering by shaping our character in it. That's why the brother of our Lord, James, in his epistle, in the very first chapter, comes right out of the gate and he's, he's, he's writing to a bunch of people who are being persecuted for their faith. And in James chapter 1, James says, My brothers and sisters, when all kinds of trials and tribulations crowd into your lives, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends, realizing that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of true endurance. You see, suffering is God's graduate school in Christlikeness for his trusting children. Welcome it. Welcome it because of what it does in your life and in your character. In the crucible of suffering, God will replace your weariness with perseverance. He will replace your selfishness with character, your despair with hope, and your ungratefulness with love. This is a principle that great men and women in the history of the church have known from the beginning. Is that those who would rise in the ranks of those who are leading in the kingdom of God and serving Christ and having an impact in transforming the world, they must embrace suffering because of what it does in their character. I think one of the first things that the crucible of suffering teaches us is where we need to grow. Someone has said that adversity introduces us to ourselves, and I will, I will bear witness to that. Whenever I went into the crucible of my physical suffering with cancer, I'd been a pastor for many years. <laughs> but I was suddenly introduced in the crucible of suffering to my true self, which was not all confident and joyful and full of trust in God and full of uh, surrender to Him. It was more like, why me, God? And... I'm mad at you, and what's going on, and this is me down here, you know? Suffering introduces you to yourself, which gives you a baseline that says, okay, here's how you have to grow. And, and, it, and it indicates, you know, where God's going to shape you and where he's going to grow you. This is why men and women in history, as I said before, have embraced suffering. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, one of the greatest evangelists that ever lived in America and ministered in America, 
When he was a young man in London taking holy orders and, and, and his ordination, he wrote his own commitment prayer to God as a young pastor to be. This has become known as the covenant prayer of John Wesley. And I just want to read it to you. And I want you to watch closely for what he asks God for. I'm no longer my own, but yours, Wesley said. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low by you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. My brothers and sisters, when all kinds of trials and tribulations crowd into your lives, don't resent them as intruders. Welcome them. God redeems our suffering by allowing our perseverance in the crucible to shape our character. He also redeems our suffering by allowing our faithfulness while suffering to glorify Him. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. The apostle writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What does that tell you right out of the gate? You should not be surprised at suffering. It's part of God's graduate program in Christ-likeness for his children. Peter says it's not a matter of if, just when. (laughs) Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Continue to do good. Look forward to that time when in the crucible of your suffering the glory of Christ is revealed. In other words, through your suffering Christ is glorified. What is glory? Glory is the manifest expression Of the attributes of deity. Who best manifested the attributes of deity? This is not a trick question. This is a Sunday school question. And the answer is a Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. (laughs) Romans, I mean, John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word was made flesh. That's Jesus. And dwelt among us. And we beheld what? His glory, the glory, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when Peter says to us, don't be surprised when you enter into the crucible of suffering, because you will have the opportunity to rejoice in the glory of God. What's he saying He's saying that we can actually glorify God by acting like Jesus with grace and truth in the crucible. His glory is revealed when we suffer like he did. Years ago, I lost a dear friend of mine, Tom Dooley. Many of you may remember Tom. 
For 17 years, he was on the Journey program on KVTT. He was a radio disc jockey who put together these, these, uh, these radio programs in which he would go through Scripture and he would back it up with, with readings from literature and poetry. It was just a wonderful ministry. He did it every day for 17 years. And he was an amazing guy. You know, God changed Tom's life drastically. He grew up in California. His name wasn't Tom. It was George out there. And he was in a rock band, and he was, I mean, he basically lived like a bat out of hell until God saved him. Brought him to Dallas, and he went on the, on the radio to use his DJ and, and, and showman skills for ministry. And he, I became dear friends with him. His, his producer said, well, we've got to change your name from George to Tom. That's when he became Tom Dooley. And I got to be great friends with Tom. I taught him how to play golf. He taught me a few guitar licks, uh, and then he got brain cancer. He died in November of 2010. Uh, I did his funeral at Irving Bible Church. In the days leading up to his death, I experienced from Tom uh, an amazing display of divine attributes, the grace and truth of God. I, I, I experienced from Tom... An amazing display of glorifying Christ by the way he suffered in his brain cancer. Just a week before he died, his wife Melanie wrote a letter to all of us who had been visiting him and going to his home. And Melanie wrote these words. She says, Tom tolerated treatments well. He did not suffer from many of the side effects of chemotherapy that are so common for others. He is still tired a lot. He still hasn't lost his sense of humor, though. He's been working with a speech therapist. Pretty ironic when you think about it. He made his living by talking, and now he has a speech therapist. Last week, the therapist asked him to name three wild animals. He said, a giraffe, an elephant, and my wife. (laughs) Tom is sick and tired of being sick and tired, yet he never complains. And he always gets joy from visits with his family and friends, during which he always makes it a point to declare the goodness of God. I was there in his home. What Melanie said is true. Even in the last days when he couldn't speak at all, he found ways to bring honor and glory to God. Touched me. So much so... That a few years later, when I entered my crucible of suffering with cancer, Tom was the one I thought of as an example of glorifying God. And I determined I wanted to glorify God like that too. That's when I started writing the book. Was in the middle, was in the middle of my cancer. And it was all because of Tom Dooley. God redeems our suffering by shaping our character. By making it glorify Him. But God also rewards our suffering. He rewards our suffering. How does He do that? There's two ways. The first way is that He rewards our suffering with deeper faith. Again, Paul the Apostle, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, Paul says, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I laugh every time I read these words from Paul when he, when he talks about their, their, their afflictions as, as apostles and, and traveling around and planting churches and being persecuted are light and momentary troubles. I mean, he's almost dismissive of it. But when he talks about light and momentary troubles, you know what he's talking about. He's talking about getting stoned and left for dead. Talking about having to escape over a wall in a basket. He's talking about getting shipwrecked and snake bit. He's talking about getting persecuted in virtually every little city in Western Europe that he went to. And yet, Paul says, in comparison with the glory that is to come, my troubles down here diminish into almost nothingness. It is light and momentary. And how does that happen in my heart that our Present suffering is light and momentary. It is by looking at what is coming in the future, by looking with the eyes of faith at what is unseen. We see the persecution. We see the chemo pumps. We see the pain. We see the disillusionment. That's what we see with our eyes. But Paul says, look, don't look at what is seen, but look at what is unseen. Look at the glory that is to come. What's he saying? He's saying that suffering actually produces the motivation for you to go deep with your faith. Because what, is, what does the New Testament call focusing on what is unseen? Faith. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is what? The substance of things not seen. So Paul says you will develop a deeper faith through suffering. Because it will motivate you to look at that which is unseen, but which is also certain. I love Timothy Keller. In his wonderful book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he talks about the eyes of faith. He says, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy by faith. So God rewards our suffering with deeper faith. He also rewards our suffering with eternal glory. You probably knew I was going to go here, Romans 9, 18 and following. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. It's all talking about. He's talking about the last chapter of the book that Pierre Bailey never read. 
That, yeah, this is a broken world and it's full of pain and suffering. But guess what? It's temporary. And a day is coming when this broken world is going to be replaced by a new heavens and a new earth and a new creation. And people are going to be there, sons and daughters of God, by faith in Jesus Christ in their resurrection bodies. And the whole creation is going to rejoice in the freedom and joy of our healing ultimately for eternity when we get to heaven. There is coming glory. God rewards our suffering with that eternal glory. I was in a restaurant one time, and the funniest thing happened. I was sitting at a table next to another table. They were round tables. And it was one of these restaurants that had these low-hanging, like, chandeliers over the table. And, uh, you know, I was sitting over here with my friends, and uh, the party at the next table, a guy was in the party, and he suddenly stood up to, to go to the bathroom or something, and he just banged his head on that lamp. Which I've done before, too. It's easy to do. Low-hanging. And he just really bashed it. And uh, I looked over, and everybody was, everybody was concerned because we heard this explosion. And so I was listening whenever his friend said to him, he said, uh, Don't worry, buddy. It will feel better when it stops hurting. Now, that's probably one of the most profound things I ever heard stated in a restaurant. You know what Paul is saying in Romans 9? It'll feel better when it stops hurting. And it will stop hurting. The glory and the freedom of the sons and daughters of God. The new creation. Mother Teresa said, From heaven, the most miserable earthly life will look like one bad night in an inconvenient motel. Again, Timothy Keller. Resurrection is not just consolation. It is restoration. We get it all back. The love, the loved ones, the goods, the beauties of this life, but in new, unimaginable degrees of glory and joy and strength. That's God's reward for suffering. We all have a choice to make, especially those of us who are right now in or entering the crucible of suffering. Our choice is not whether we go in. We don't get that choice. But we do get a choice about how we're going to navigate this thing. You can really choose. And that's one of the things I learned right off the bat is I can actually choose my posture as I go through this. Am I going to have a biblical posture and try to respond to this with the character of Christ Or am I just going to let this pain continue to bent me out of shape and get me wrapped around the axle of being mad at God, depressed about life? You make that choice. I pray. I pray that we will all choose when the time comes 
in the batter's box of suffering. I pray that we will all choose to stay in school. The crucible of suffering is God's graduate school of Christ-likeness for His trusting children. Don't drop out. Go ahead and get an advanced degree. So, I took my best shot. I, I hope I convinced you from Scripture that the crucible of suffering... Though never fun and always difficult, is actually an opportunity for us to step up and to live life at a more spiritual and joyful and hopeful level, an effective level for the kingdom of God than we ever had in our life before. I pray that you will make that choice. Stay in school. And just before we go and finish, I want to give you three tips about how to do that effectively. Okay? How to stay in school. How to stay in the crucible of suffering. The first tip I would give you is to live hopefully one day at a time. One of the things I realized when I entered into the Cancer Valley was that my mind was going crazy in advance. Always picturing the worst, right? I didn't have much of a chance of survival in this thing, but I worried about it and obsessed about it at first until I began to realize that letting my mind go out way in advance and worrying about stuff that hasn't happened yet isn't helping the situation at all. And I came across this psalm, Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6, where the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in His Word I put my hope. You know, suffering often includes long periods of waiting, Waiting for test results, waiting for things to feel better, waiting for this, waiting for that. And the psalmist says, you've got to wait on a daily basis. He says, I wait for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning, more than the watchman waits for the morning. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. You see, this is how Jesus lived his life. Hopefully, hopefully, one day at a time. Be present to the moment in the crucible of suffering. God is doing good things in and through you. Savor it every day. The second tip I would give you for navigating the valley of suffering is to choose to deeply love everyone around you. Do you remember we started off with Romans 5 where Paul gives us the chain of suffering? That suffering produces character, character perseverance, perseverance hope, and hope what? Love. The crucible of suffering in the lives of God's children, if they understand that God is redeeming their suffering and rewarding their suffering, is the place where they are most motivated to open their hearts and let the love of the Holy Spirit flow through them. Let the love of the Holy Spirit flow through you. Love your family and friends like you've never loved them before and tell them and serve them. You'll never be more empowered or motivated to do it than when you're in the crucible. My final tip is to joyfully bear witness of God's goodness. Joyfully bear witness of God's goodness. 
I think one of the first temptations of those of us who are Christians, Christ followers, whenever we enter into a season of suffering is that we feel like God, is, God wouldn't mind if we just took a vacation from ministry. Uh, you know, I don't feel good, God. So, Actually, I believe that in the crucible of suffering, God shines the spotlight on us when we actually respond to our suffering like Jesus so that the whole world will see. I would say it this way. The greatest platform for your testimony of faith in Christ to be projected to the world around you far beyond what you even understand. The greatest opportunity for that is when you are in the valley of suffering. Because when the world looks at you and you're suffering with joy and hope and patience, love flowing through your heart, the world sits up and takes notice. That person must serve a living God. I want to close by reading a blessing to you all here at Chase Oaks. And I did this by basically fudging on Eugene Peterson's message version of Romans 8. And I changed some words around and stuff, but I made it into a blessing. And I want to read this blessing over all of you here at Chase Oaks, especially those of you who are in the crucible of suffering, okay? Why don't you close your eyes and just listen to this? Dear friends at Chase Oaks, who are weary in the crucible of suffering, be blessed with the knowledge that God's Spirit is right alongside you, helping you along. He prays in you and for you, making prayer out of your wordless sighs, your aching groans. Therefore, you can also be blessed, my brothers and sisters. With the knowledge that every detail in your life of love for God has worked into something good. He knew what he was doing from the very beginning in shaping your life and the lives of those around you who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a good, good father. That you're never closer to us than when we are in the crucible of suffering. And that our lives never bear such potential for ministry and testimony to your glory than when we are in the crucible of suffering. Help us to stay in the free fall, Lord. Help us not to drop out of graduate school, but help us to trust you. That you love us. You're a good, good father. And you're making us like your son. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.